Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Khaled Mustafa Medini of McGill University about his new book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. We also talk to Kristen Cow of Gothenburg University and Mara Revkin of Georgetown Law Center about their new article in the American Journal of Political Science, To Punish or to Pardon, Reintegrating Rebel Collaborators After Conflict in Iraq. And finally, we speak with Jonathan Fulton, prolific author about China in the Middle East and uh, the host of an upcoming new podcast, China and the Middle East, um, about China in the Middle East. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Khaled Mustafa Medini, author of the new book, Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, Khaled, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. So this is this is an incredibly impressive book. I, I've rarely seen a book that does comparative analysis of Egypt, Sudan, Somalia, and uh, really digs into empirics that we haven't really seen before in the literature. Um, and so maybe we could start if you could just give us a big picture, um, kind of what the book is and what the major contributions are uh, to understanding these issues. Yes, of course. Um, well, the, the central kind of concept has to do with economic globalization um, and its impact on domestic political outcomes in Egypt, Sudan, and Somalia. And by economic um, globalization, um, I mean something very specific, and that is the um, outmigration of Egyptians, Sudanese, and Somalis, particularly to the Gulf in the 1970s during the oil boom, and the, their kind of sending of labor remittances, uh, primarily initially through informal channels, informal banking systems in Egypt, Sudan, and Somalia. Um, and what I wanted to do was try to unpack and trace the relationship between those kind of financial inflows um, their relationship to variations in the capacity of these states to regulate these financial inflows and how that affects different forms of identity politics at the level of community. So it required some work in terms of collecting figures and stats on uh, labor remittances in these countries, but also very intense ethnographic research in local com communities in Egypt, Sudan, and Somalia. I think for those unfamiliar with labor remittances in the Middle East and North Africa, it's important for people to understand that they represent a larger source of foreign exchange. Uh, they are extremely important. They're much more in our region, uh, much more in terms of value than um, uh, foreign direct investment or even official aid. Uh, in Egypt, for example, the last year's figures have them at 2.7 billion going into Egypt. Now, through the 1970s and 80s in particular, most of these labor remittance inflows were going through informal channels. In other words, they were landing you know, in the hands of individuals and families. And so I trace that, but also the kind of intervening variable, so to speak, that makes the difference in these different political outcomes has to do with the capacity of the Egyptian state, the Sudanese state, and the Somali state in regulating these financial flows, which is uh, really an important part. And so the, the relationship between economic globalization, variations in state capacity, with Egypt having the greater capacity to regulate uh, Sudan following that, and Somalia having the weakest capacity to regulate these financial flows, I trace that to um, the type of political coalition that are able to monopolize these informal markets, uh, informal market relations. And the central kind of concept at the lower level of analysis is the role of informal networks, since these are essentially, particularly during 
the oil boom period uh, were um, sent it through informal channels. Um, I look at how um, uh, particularly uh, Islamist movements of the kind of Middle East, um, um, middle class variety as in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Sudan, how they were able to utilize these um, financial inflows to establish Islamic institutions, Islamic financial institutions, Islamic welfare institutions, and popularize the Islamist trend in both Egypt and Sudan. But in addition to that, I look at how these um, informal financial flows are also captured by militant organizations in Egypt. I did a lot of work with Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya, the former members of them in Imbaba, in the neighborhood of Imbaba, primarily an informal settlement. And it's here, as you know, where Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya had its most popularity in urban Cairo. And so I spent uh, many months uh, in that neighborhood uh, tracking how these informal financial flows uh, also led to another form of informalization, and that is the expansion of uh, informal housing and informal labor markets. And um, the book in the, in the context of Egypt shows how Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya were able through a variety of means, including of course violent means, were able to um, organize informal labor markets in ways that altered the incentive structure for certain young Egyptian men, uh, leading them to uh, join these militant organizations. So an important part of the book that some of your listeners may be interested in is tracing the social and economic factors that lead to the recruitment of youth into militant organizations like Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya. So we have three different political outcomes here as a result of these different levels of analysis. Economic uh, globalization defined as labor remittance inflows, uh, variations in state capacity, and how over time in the context of the boom and bust cycles associated with the with the, with all the oil um, uh, economies in the Gulf, um, how that led to, in the case of Egypt, um, initially the erosion of the extractive capacity of the state. And then through the 1990s, the Egyptian government had the capacity to actually find, uh, liberalize the financial sector and financial markets. And that undercut the financial clout of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So I trace that in Egypt and I do the same uh, in Sudan to show how the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan were able also to popularize their movement and recruitment drives through the capture of these informal financial um, uh, markets. This is in the period of the boom. In Somalia, uh, I show, and it's important because it has the weakest state capacity, the weakest capacity to regulate financial inflows, um, had to rely on a particular kind of social structure, that is the clan structure. These um, informal financial flows, labor remittances were channeled, as I show based on a survey I conducted in Somalia, were channeled through clan networks. And so whereas in Egypt and Sudan, it popularized, these flows popularized um, the Islamist middle-class movements, um, in the case of Somalia, they actually hardened uh, clan ties. Uh, and I make this argument that in doing so, they actually um, led to the increasing erosion of the capacity of the state to regulate the economy and even to implement re uh, repression against the entire population, leading to the disintegration of the Somali state. So that's in the period uh, primarily um, 1970s to the 1990s. And from there, the second part of the book looks, uh, looks at the consequences in the context of um, the economic recession, the slump in oil prices. 
um, and how that affected um, the you know, fortunes of the Islamist movement, I actually look at the evolution and um, decline in uh, the strength, particularly because of the lack of financial incentives that underpinned the patriotic networks of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt. In contest with the Mubarak state, they lost the kind of financial um, uh, incentives or kind of um, financial material support that they could they recruited in the past. The same in in Sudan, uh, following the uh, secession of South Sudan in 2011, the, actually the Sudanese state uh, transformed from a remittance economy, a labor exporting economy to an oil economy. And I trace how that affected the increasing decline in the wealth and fiscal capacity of the Sudanese state, leading to ultimately the fall of the Islamist authoritarian state in Sudan. So we have here, the context is economic globalization, the kind of in intervening variables that determines uh, the different outcomes and, and variation is the capacity of states to regulate the economy, including the capacity to implement state repression. Um, and finally, of course, uh, the, at the lower level of analysis is that how different political coalitions were able to capture informal commercial networks, what I call trust networks, in ways that help them organize, whether it was middle-class movements or um, clan organizations and insurgent groups in Somalia or militant organizations, as in the case of um, uh, the Gama'a Islamiya in urban Cairo, in the informal settlements of Imbaba in particular, and what and um, uh, Western Munira, uh, Munira al-Gharbiya, where uh, the majority of Gama'a Islamiya were recruited from. So there's a, a lot going on in this book. There's so many um, kind of different avenues that we could talk about, but maybe we could start um, with where you began with the labor remittances, because this is really one of the most original and, uh, and, and, and really empirically rich parts of the book um, and really tracking um, the, the flows of labor and the way the money came back in. So why did the Islamists have such an advantage in Egypt and Syria? What allowed them uh, in your reading to have this disproportionate advantage in terms of capturing uh, those remittance flows? Um, it's a very simple answer to that. Had an incentive. I think this is one of the contributions of the book. Um, whereas, uh, frankly, conventional um, economists, uh, not anymore as much, but in, in that period, the neoliberal economists, the notion was these are kind of black market um, um, relations and uh, um, that really had to do with the excessive uh, uh, regulation of the state, which is partly true. Uh, but what I really make, uh, I make a very important uh, point in, and I think it's one of the most important contributions, is the, that states often uh, benefit from the expansion of informal financial markets and black markets. In the case of Egypt, um, it uh, did a couple of things. The Egyptian uh, government, both under uh, uh, Anwar Sadat in the late 1970s, but also, of course, under Mubarak before the 1990s, is that it allowed in the Egyptian case a, safe, uh, um, a safety valve. Um, you could implement economic reforms in the context of allowing for in these informal financial networks. But key and central to that was this was a period of the oil boom when the Egyptian government and the Sudanese government wanted to attract as much Gulf financing as possible. Um, and so what I make, uh, I make a really important uh, point in this uh, book that um, the informal financial markets are often promoted by uh, states in terms of their economic policies when they benefit from that, um, but they attack the 
informal financial market or those, um, let's say, the Muslim Brotherhood who have profited from that in the context of when they fear that there is uh, going to be too much strength in civil society. Uh, so um, an important proposition that I outline is the extent to which um, the informalization of these economies really uh, leads to um, states eventually enacting reprisals because this inform these informal financial networks help to expand uh, civil society groups and uh, oftentimes they come into context with the state. In the case of Egypt, they supported the Muslim Brotherhood uh, for a variety of reasons uh, because of uh, trying to implement their economic reform. Uh, and also it was a way to attract those labor remittances uh, in the context of uh, state regulation. In the, by the, um, the beginning of the 1990s, 91, 92, the Egyptian government, um, it was very clear that they needed to, from their perspective, uh, liberalize the financial sector, um, you know, to enact the kind of economic reforms the IMF and World Bank, of course, had asked, or, although, as you know, privatization has been very slow historically in Egypt. But another um, aspect of that was political. They wanted and recognized that, um, of course, that the Muslim Brotherhood in particular were expanding their financial base. And that this is a period where you saw the big um, Muslim Brotherhood businessmen imprisoned, uh, put on trial. Um, um, and there was a really reprisals against um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the brotherhood's uh, economy, as the Egyptians like right. to say, uh, um, and that becomes a really important uh, reason why the financial markets were liberalized. Since that time, of course, the economic power of the Muslim Brotherhood has diminished. Later on, of course, there are political uh, consequences to that. Um, in the case of Sudan, um, the government, because of its weaker capacity, uh, um, was not able to um, really liberalize the financial market as such, but there was one important difference. In the case of Sudan, by that time in 1989, guess who was in power? And that is the Muslim Brotherhood of Sudan. Mm -hmm. So the Muslim Brotherhood of Sudan, who had benefited from uh, making a huge windfall profits in the informal financial markets, um, did not want, of course, to curtail it because they were generating profits for it. They did begin to curtail it only to the point where there were huge um, protests and opposition in civil society. So that's really important to, to keep in mind. Um, all of that has to, to, is to say that the internationalization of, the economic, of these economic transactions, these informal economic transactions, coincide with the expansion of informal market relations. And um, states, uh, Egypt, Sudan, and Somalia as well, try to generate profits from them um, uh, and use them as a safety valve to, in the context of economic reform, but they attack them. They, uh, in both cases, almost at the same time by the late 1990s or early 1990s rather, um, all states really struck back against those forces in civil society, uh, coalitions that had um, coalesced around these informal financial markets and inf informal networks. Now, you, you talk a lot about the informal networks, but one of the kind of the subplots that you that is woven through this is the rise of Islamic banking as as its own sector, which is uh, kind of an interesting part of capital accumulation in, in these kinds of independent institutions. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's another very important aspect in terms of ev evaluating the different strengths of the different countries. This pertains in particular to Egypt and, uh, and uh, Sudan. Um, they really followed the same trajectory uh, for decades, actually, in terms of the political economy of labor remittances and the rise of Islamic banking. Um, in the case of um, Sudan, the Muslim Brotherhood were able, uh, through the establishment in the 1970s of the first bank, the Faisal Islamic Bank, to begin a partnership, so to speak, with investors in the Gulf. 
myself and shareholders. Uh, and the Faisal Islamic Bank uh, worked on a profit share uh, kind of uh, system. But what uh, the Muslim Brotherhoods in Egypt, uh, or in Sudan rather, did with these Islamic banking institutions as they expanded them was to use them as a mode of recruitment. In particular, uh, as I show in the book, the allocation of credit was given almost exclusively to supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood and or to entice new members into the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan. Uh, and so the Islamic banking experiment was formative in the success of the Islamist movement in Sudan. It is only after the Islamic banking uh, hegemony over the financial sector in Sudan, um, really based on the capture of labor remittances by these Islamists in Sudan, it was only at that point that they were able to finance recruitment drives in the military um, that eventually alongside with them took over power in 1989. In Egypt here again, there's a difference. There's a beginning kind of Sherikat Tawzif al the informal money changing um, uh, in institutions that of course uh, provided, uh, or they said that they gave um, favorable interest uh, rates uh, to people or rather did not charge interest. Not interest. <laughs> not interest, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Shares. Yeah, yes, shares, exactly. Um, and that, of course, was a big scandal that Egyptians know uh, full well. Uh, it ended up being a pyramid scheme. It was dissolved because of the uh, great conflict over that time, which is really important. And of course, it was dissolved uh, by the government. The Muslim Brotherhood leadership was of really of two minds. Many of the leadership supported these uh, this experiment of the money management uh, schemes. Others did not. So I kind of want to make sure that I problematize that in the book, which I uh, which I do. Um, the Islamic banking experiment in Egypt was not as successful as the one in Sudan, uh, basically because from the very beginning, the Egyptian state knew that this would potentially pose a threat. Sometimes I joke with my Egyptian friends and say, maybe they looked at the Sudanese uh, example, uh, even at that time, because what they did is they ensured that the government um, was um, you know, regulating uh, these Islamic banks, including at the level of shareholders. And they've been very, they were very, very strict about delimiting the autonomy of the Muslim Brotherhood over these Islamic banks. Uh, and what they did is that they would just um, expand the other banks and allow for the kind of public banks and other non-Muslim Islamist banks to have Qart Hassan, to have kind of an Islamic kind of portion uh, right. that uh, allows Egyptians to, to deposit absent uh, interest without um, the problem with, of riba. Uh, but the long story short is that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood um, had a full monopoly of the Islamic banks. Uh, they had by that time taken over the levers of the state. And of course, they were able to promote the Islamic banking experiment. In the case of Egypt, the state were, was fully aware that the Islamic banking system or, or institutions would threaten them very early on. This is the period after they decided that the Muslim Brotherhood was actually a real threat. Uh, this is different from the uh, Anwar Sadat period. So that's extremely important. But I do detail in the book also why in Sudan this Islamic banking experiment uh, failed. So I detail exactly how inefficient it was and the kind of level of corruption associated with it and how it was really operating under what we call hidden interest. Uh, that is that although formerly interest or riba uh, was not part of the lending schemes, uh, it was clear that it uh, operated on the, on, the, on the basis of hidden interest as well. So uh, over, eventually over time, that becomes really Im important aspect of the failure of the Islamic banking system also in, the, in, in Sudan uh, over time. So you mentioned Sudan a number of times here, and I actually wanna go and talk about Sudan a little bit because you know in Middle East studies of 
well, of everything, but especially about Islamist movements, um, the Sudan experience is largely absent. Uh, you rarely see discussion of it, even though it is one of the one of the only cases where you have a Muslim Brotherhood organization actually taking state power and governing. Could you talk a little bit about the Sudanese experience with um, with Islamism and the Muslim Brotherhood and kind of how they fit within how we understand these organizations? What, what, what do we need to what do we learn about Islamist movements by bringing the Sudanese experience back in? Well, um, I think I have to say, uh, yes, in the kind of uh, Middle East academ uh, academia, uh, especially in North America, Sudan is, uh, is not uh, uh, central to much of the study of Islamist movements. That's not the case in the Middle East region, to be quite honest. I've traveled to Egypt, of course, and Morocco and Tunisia. And so Sudan is actually central for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them, of course, is that it is the only case where you have the Muslim Brotherhood um, in, a, in a Sunni country, essentially Sunni country, take over the levels of state power. So one of the, the important aspects of understanding Sudan is how was the Muslim Brotherhood able to take over power um, and take over the power uh, levers of the state in Sudan. And in, in doing so, one learns why the other Muslim brother, um, um, the movements have not been able to do so. So very quickly, as if you understand how the Islamist movement in Sudan, which began as early as the 1940s as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood organization in Egypt, how it planned in ideological ways, not only to implement or um, disseminate a particular form of uh, under Hassan Turabi, Islamist doctrine and indoctrination that becomes very, very uh, popular. Um, and um, even more importantly, how the Islamist movement was um, able to very deftly and craftily um, um, mobilize a, a, a social movement um, um, in the context of uh, a period of very close economic linkages to the Gulf countries, set up autonomous uh, or rather monopolize uh, the informal financial networks and the Islamic banks, and very importantly, um, ally with the military. You know, most of the militaries in the Middle East, as you know, in the Arab countries, uh, do not have and are wary of any kind of um, inclusion of members of the Muslim Brotherhood. But what we see here in Sudan is that A, that financial networks were very important and that Sudan also uh, was very important, an example in terms of how uh, one recruits Islamists into the military establishment in ways that could, uh, could assert power. The you mentioned state, them working with the student movements and then getting students to join, join the military Absolutely, exactly. That becomes really important. The student movements are very important in the sense that the Islamist movement was very successful in displacing the leftist and uh, liberal students. That becomes a really important kind of commonality of all of the Muslim Brotherhood organizations on the, on the campuses. But I think what makes a big difference is the weakness of the, the, you know, the relative weakness of the Sudanese state, the less than cohesive military infrastructure, uh, that you have in Sudan as opposed to say, let's say Egypt or even Tunisia. Um, and so combined, these are factors that um, many people in the Arab world actually know. So uh, in Egypt, I have full discussions uh, when I was there about the success of the Sudanese. Uh, when I interviewed the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, I should be careful here. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the late Islam al-Aryan and others that uh, they actually looked at Sudan as an example. Uh, and so for the Middle East region, it was very important. Remember, this was a, a period where the Muslim Brotherhood was su were successful in, um, in Sudan and uh, taking over the state. Another very important aspect, and I, uh, um, I 
I kind of detail in the book a bit is the transnational character of the Islamist movement because the Sudan was able to take the Islamists were able to take over power in the in Sudan. They were also uh, much more successful than others to link up with other Islamist movements elsewhere, ranging from, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt to um, you know Nahda in Tunisia. Um, this was a period where these other groups actually found sanctuary uh, in Sudan and organizational kind of capacity that was important. So their transnational reach was very important. Sudan represented in many ways in the 1990s, the epicenter of Islamist mobilization transnationally in the region. This is why in the region, Sudan actually is not peripheral <laughs> for two. two Absolutely. Two. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and it's yeah. interesting because you know you, you trace the way that uh, it's not just beginning with Omar Bashir's coup, it's um, with Nameri. Uh, all the way through, you know, his search for alternative political coalitions and finding these Islamic banks and the Islamic movement available for him. Absolutely. This is why it's a longer story of, uh, you know, the decline of state legitimacy and the necessity uh, and in, in Nimeri in particular in the context of economic crisis, but also the wonderful boom from his perspective coming from the Gulf in terms of the opportunity of, of financial flows and capital investment from the Gulf countries. Um, you know, the, the most important coalition at the time was this uh, increasingly organized Islamist movement. Remember, the Egyptian state did the same thing. Anwar Sadat, of course, by the time he took over power, the mid-1970s and uh, and in the early years of Mubarak, the, Islam, the Muslim Brotherhood played a very important role in, um, in really uh, representing a coalition that would be in opposition to other more problematic and oppositional coalitions in Egypt. Not to mention, of course, they had direct linkages to the Gulf countries at the time. And of course, they promoted uh, policies of economic reform and liberalization that coincided with the political objectives and the economic objectives of the Egyptian state at the time. The same can be said of Sudan, where Nimeri was forced to outbid the traditional political parties and the communist party that uh, the, the only uh, group that he need, that was left uh, for him in terms of to build his coalition um, was the Muslim uh, Brotherhood. But as I say in the book, at the end, the Muslim Brotherhood actually um, uh, swallowed its patron uh, and took over power in 1989. <laughs> so it's a very important story. Then, but then Bashir, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, he shifts from a remittance economy to an oil economy, um, which in a sense almost turns him away from that original base. That's right. Um, you know, uh, politics is very interesting and historical contingency is very interested. And of course, there's an uh, element of um, survival. Um, number one, of course, by that time, the boom um, in labor remittance inflows and particularly kind of financial investment from the Gulf was dwindling. Um, the, you know, we know and I show in figures how the labor remittances slowed because of the oil um, um, uh, the, the slump in oil prices, uh, that's very important. But another aspect had to do with the um, increasing um, uh, kind of illegitimacy of Bashir's regime. Um, by uh, 2005, when Bashir was um, signed the Comprehensive Peace Agreement with Southern Sudanese rebels at the time, the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement, um, he felt that he had no choice but to really allow for the secession of Sudan, even though oil was so important. So. Um, Oil was representing a very important source of finance for his patronage networks, um, but uh, this is a decision Bashir made where he was more, uh, more interested in his own personal survival than he was um, interested in, uh, in oil, which is one of the historical mistakes that many people say that he made. But this is where he was really thinking in the, in the mind of a dictator, uh, not a national leader. 
and that is how is he going to maintain power and the best way was to uh, get rid of South Sudan so to speak and agree with the leader Salva Kiir in South Sudan for to basically oversee this uh, this secession and hope that and I, as I show in the book that there would be a creation of a new coalition based on what we call this Arabist Hamdi triangle in which all the investment would go to a particular group of Arabized uh, ethnic groups in Sudan and he was hoping that that would be sufficient to buttress his legitimacy in addition to the coercive apparatus of the state. So I guess one last question then, because I know this is really uh, kind of near and dear to you and be, since it's uh, so close, the, the ethnography and the field research that you did uh, on the Gamal Islamiya, um, let's talk a little bit about that and, and the differences between uh, the Muslim Brotherhood experience, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, and what you learned about the Gamal, which I think people are much less familiar with. Yes, thank you for that. I actually have three chapters in Egypt, one more than the others. Uh, that has nothing to do with, I'm completely Sudanese in every way, but uh, uh, the last chapter in particular is really about the Gama Islami. One of the reasons that I find it important, and I hope people find it interesting, is that, you know, a lot of the work on um, uh, whether it's Islamic extremism or the roots of terrorism is, uh, for me, has always been very unsatisfying analytically because the notion of the, you know, the, a lot of the for lack of better terms, the research design was really focused on explaining um, militancy as an outcome to be explained, so to speak, you know, um, or focusing on the leadership of these militant organizations. And of course, then finding, we know there's a selection bias. In, in other words, you know, the notion being then that, uh, that poverty doesn't have anything to do with extremism. And what I make, um, you know, uh, clear in this book, having, you know, with, with respect to Gamar Islamiyah, that actually, while poverty in the abstract does not necessarily, um, uh, is not the central contributing factor, economic insecurity is. And I make it very clear through a lot of ethnographic research among the former Al-Gamar, that there were a combination of uh, important elements that led to their popularity. Number one was the informalization of housing that accompanied economic reform and the, the boom in labor emittances. And uh, most important, and maybe this is dear to my heart, <laughs> the expansion of informal labor, informal labor markets. I think it's important for people to know that over 60% of the Egyptian population, um, kind of uh, working age population actually enter into the informal labor markets in Egypt. And so this is uh, very important. So what I uh, detail in the case of particular um, uh, sections of Inbaba, uh, Western Munira, where there is uh, the majority of young men are actually engaged in formal uh, market relations, particularly in construction and other trades, but construction is really central. And what I found very coincidentally was the majority of rank and file, not the leaders, but the majority of rank and file members of Al-Qamah Islamiyah actually came from that segment of the labor market, the informal labor market. Um, that does not explain the whole situation, but what I detail in the last chapter on Egypt is that Al-Qamah Islamiyah um, utilized that um, and formed a very comprehensive strategy of recruitment that included um, approximating the norms of their own um, kind of uh, organization um, to the what the adolab, the informal labor market um, uh, in in this neighborhood, um, they profited from the decline, as I show in detail, the decline of traditional authority in what is um, you know a you know ruralized urban population, which is really important, and they used a number of different coercive tactics as well. I can tell you that when I spoke to the Gama Islamia in Baba at the beginning of my research, they were actually uh, told me that they were surprised that they would found themselves 
um, having such popularity among the young men. And that's an important thing, uh, comment I always like to tell people. Uh, this is not an omnipotent organization. Uh, they profited from the history of um, uh, land conflict uh, uh, in, uh, in Baba um, in, in the context of rural urban migration. And they profited a great deal from the decline of uh, Lijan Sol, other forms of traditional dispute settlement. Um, and in the context of the informalization of labor market, they found them, the, themselves able to generate um, and um, construct incentives, uh, both economic, but also normative incentives to recruit uh, these kind of uh, young members, rank and file members into the organization. I'm often asked, uh, but that doesn't explain their military aspect, their extremism. That I explained through a history of violence in the region, in the, in the area. Uh, I also explained it through the use of uh, Baltagi, uh, the kind of very important uh, source of uh, coercion. Not all Baltagis, I distinguish between different forms forms of, uh, of al-Baltagiyya, as we say in Egypt, um, uh, I make sure to show precisely how they um, were able to utilize uh, the Baltagiyya for their coercive purposes. But I also emphasize throughout that the violence greatly stems from their unpopularity in general in this area, particularly as they came into competition with um, you know, groups uh, adhering to clans in the area and even Coptic Christians in the area. Well, this is so interesting. There's so much in this book. It's so rich. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with uh, Khaled Mustafa Medini of McGill University about his new book, Black Markets and Militants, just out at Cambridge University Press. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment, we're joined by Kristen Kau of the University of Gothenburg and Mara Revkin of Georgetown University's Law Center. They're the authors of a new article, Retribution or Reconciliation, just published open access by the American Journal of Political Science. Amara, Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So Mara, could you tell us a little bit about this article kind of where it came from and what the major uh, contribution of the article is? Thanks, Mark, and, and thanks also for POMEP's uh, support over this uh, of this work over the last uh, many years. POMEP was an early supporter through the TRE grants, uh, and it's been wonderful working with uh, Kristen on this um, and seeing, seeing it evolve over the years, and we're grateful for the opportunity to publish in AJPS. So um, to start out with, there's a lot more to say about theory and methods that we'll get into, um, but I want to really um, give you a sense of the problem and really the crisis um, that was the driving motivation for this paper. So uh, the Islamic State, um, an insurgent group that um, captured that significant territory in Iraq and Syria and, and controlled and governed it, governed it um, between 2014 and 2017 was was eventually defeated from Mosul and other cities in Iraq. Uh, then it had left behind a population of um, at least 5 million Iraqi civilians, largely, who had um, been living under um, its rule for these, these three or more years. Um, in, in many cases, involuntarily, these were people who were living in these cities and, and villages um, and you know, had their governments taken over almost overnight by, by a designated terrorist organization, which immediately um, you know, uh, ca captured a, a monopoly on the economy. Um, and uh, had a very coercive and authoritarian um, uh, style of rule in which dissent uh, was, was impossible and, and dissent might be fatal. So there was widespread uh, co co cooperation, as we call it in the paper, collaboration among um, many, many civilians in these areas just for the sake of survival um, and for continuing to feed their families. A lot of these people worked in um, public sector jobs in departments of municipal services, um, in hospitals. Uh, so these this population of 5 million, these 
are not the fighters or combatants who were engaged in um, military operations and terrorism, um, but these were really civilians who were caught up in, in the bureaucracy of um, this, what, you know, what really was a de facto state. Um, and, uh, and, and, and even if not even working and employed by the Islamic State, we're paying taxes to it. So anyway, in the aftermath of the defeat of the Islamic State um, uh, in Mosul in, in 2017, uh, there was widespread, there was wide, widespread sweeping demands for justice and accountability um, uh, for uh, people, for, for the, the group's many, many crimes, which were severe and included a genocide of um, uh, the Yazidi minority, um, as, as well as um, you know, tens, tens of uh, thousands of, um, of Sunni civilians also killed. So this was really a cross-sectarian you know, crisis that victimized many, many groups. Um, the, the operating sort of assumption of the Iraqi government um, and of uh, judges who were uh, overseeing terrorism trials at this time is that um, it was to take sort of a, a very uh, collective approach to this problem, viewing sort of anyone who had had any contact with the Islamic State whatsoever as a, as a collaborator. Uh, the design of Iraq's anti-terrorism law, which is um, membership or status-based rather than um, action-based, um, makes it possible to convict someone of terrorism for mere sort of a association with a group, regardless of evidence that they committed a specific violent crime. So anyway, this led to what um, Kristen and I, and I, I, was, I observed some of these trials myself at the time in 2018, while doing work for, um, uh, for, for doing some other work for my dissertation. Uh, and it was very clear, um, the, the injustice and unfairness of these trials is clear. Their trials um, are, you know, completed in um, sometimes uh, less than 10 minutes with a 98% conviction rate. Um, more than 20,000 uh, Iraqis were, were detained um, and, and charged under the anti-terrorism law in that uh, year or two after after um, the ISIS military defeat. So Chris and I, you know, in the paper described this as a kind of um, collective punishment, one size fits all approach um, to transitional justice. And, you know, we um, thought that uh, it would be helpful to actually Iraq, ask Iraqi civilians, um, Iraqis who had lived through this conflict and, and personally experienced some of these crimes, um, what they actually believe about um, the uh, culpability and their preferences for justice um, and, and accountability uh, in dealing with the Islamic State. Um, so you know, we conducted this survey in Mosul in, in 2018 uh, with a random sample of more, uh, more than 1,400 residents of the city and um, found that actually, and, and Chris will go in more into findings, but um, that the Differences of Iraqis um, actually uh, differed um, and, and were more lenient and much more nuanced than those of the Iraqi government. So, um, you know, Iraqis, when we presented these um, conjoint survey experiments, uh, with, with that randomly varied hypothetical attributes of, of different um, collaborators, um, whether uh, what their role was in the group, whether they were a, a fighter, um, a, a cook, a janitor, um, or a wife of a fighter, uh, people preferred more lenient um, pu punishments um, for those who were less closely associated. Um, and and uh, we find also that the perceived um, voluntariness of action was really important. So uh, anyway, I, I want to stop here um, and give Kristen um, a chance to say more about findings. Um, but um, um, but but so um yeah Kristen over to you or yeah no it's it's really interesting and it's useful to have that context uh, for uh, these questions about uh, transitional justice they don't usually ask people uh, ordinary citizens about what they think about these things so it's really interesting so Kristen why don't you tell us about the survey and about the the the, the methods and data that you used uh, to try and explore this question yeah I think that um. um the methods involved in this paper uh, really represent uh, a, 
a very cool and very um, important collaboration between uh, scholars of, of differing backgrounds. So when I met Mara, um, back then at least, she, you know, she didn't have much quantitative experience, but she was very, very, you know, very, very um, uh, deep in the both qualitative methods, uh, in-depth interviewing techniques. Uh, she had spent a lot of time uh, on uh, doing field work in Iraq. She knew the case extremely well, uh, knows Arabic, etc. Um, so it was really nice to uh, meet someone with such uh, rich knowledge of this case and this very important um, problem and seeking to answer these um, uh, very impactful questions. And uh, so what I brought to this collaboration was sort of uh, knowledge of um, survey experiments and survey design. Um, and so we worked with a team on the ground, a local team, um, uh, that uh, hired um, surveyors from um, the Mosul area and we spent a lot of time developing training protocols and uh, working with them to make sure that the survey would be conducted in uh, both um, an ethical way and um, in a way that uh, would represent rigorous research. And as Mara already said, it was a tablet-based survey face-to-face um, -face with 1,458 uh, Moslawis, as they're called, uh, residents of Mosul, uh, between March and April of 2018. So that's just about eight months or so after the territorial defeat of ISIS um, in Mosul. And uh, the sample I should mention here was intentionally limited to Sunni Arab Iraqis. And we did that for a number of reasons, having to do with like the goals of the overall project, um, lim you know, limits on or yeah, limits of funding, of course, um, and the types of people that were uh, living in Mosul at this time. Uh, but we did uh, randomly select neighborhoods and randomly select adults within those neighborhoods. Um, and uh, Sunni Arabs, I believe at this time, uh, made up about 97% of the Mosul population. So we do consider this to be um, a representative sample of Mosul at this time. And the, non and, uh, and the very low non-response rate was remarkable. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think people had, had just been through this uh, horrible time and maybe a time when they couldn't even speak a lot and they really wanted to have their stories heard. Um, and so we employed what's known as a conjoint uh, experimental uh, design. It was a rather novel approach in political science at, at that point in time. Um, it's become pretty popular now. Um, but we believe it's the first time this method uh, was used for understanding the conditions under which citizens uh, coming out of conflict would be willing to maybe accept um, former enemies into their communities. And we didn't have, therefore, a lot of uh, theoretical models to sort of build off of. Um, there is some obviously rich qualitative work um, about uh, former collaborators uh, or former enemies um, and reconciliation. Um, so we tried to build off of those and we developed a rather simple uh, theoretical framework to begin with in this project. Um, so we don't then claim to have sort of a comprehensive model in this paper of what shapes attitudes towards um, former enemies, but that said, we do actually hope that like this model can uh, uh, serve as maybe a basis of um, a maybe burgeoning research agenda uh, in the field. And we examined so, so, then... So tell us about the conjoint specifically, like what, what exactly did you, uh, what, what question or how did you pose this to the respondents? Yeah, okay, so um, we, uh, the, the experiment question actually asked respondents two main outcomes. The first one uh, was the likelihood of, 
or I'm sorry, the first one was actually the preference for the type of punishment, uh, of, if any, for this collaborator. So I should say that we did allow amnesty as, a, as an option, um, all the way uh, to um, the death penalty. So these were realistic options at the time. Um, the one that was maybe uh, less commonly applied or maybe less realistic was we did also offer a more restorative option of community service. Um, but then it increased sort of in terms of numbers of years in prison. So I think we did um, three years in prison and 15 years in prison. Um, and then the second outcome question was actually asked after the punishment, um, how likely would you be to forgive uh, this former enemy? And uh, in the experiment then we um, randomized two uh, main uh, aspects of enemy collaborators. So the first were identity characteristics. We already know from a lot of research that things like um, shared identity um, uh, or shared ethnicity, for example, um, might affect uh, how you perceive others and whether you want them in your community. We also randomized age and gender. And then uh, uh, the second main factor that we were looking at was the levels of severity of their um, act of collaboration with the Islamic State. And then we also sort of look at two mechanisms uh, more observationally. The first is this uh, revenge hypothesis. So many studies in conflict uh, find that exposure to violence decreases willingness to forgive transgressors. And the second mechanism, it fits more with um, social psychological models of blame and responsibility. Uh, so not only does the severity of the act determine cult culpability, but so does perceived intention or volition behind committing uh, that act. Uh, and so, and also we thought that this, you know, perceived volition might have um, different differential effects for uh, collaborative acts. Um, so, for example, if an act is very severe, then intent may not make so much of a difference. But if uh, an act is less severe, as Mara was talking about, there's many people who were civilians and did not engage in violence, then maybe intent would really matter. And we do, in fact, find that. Um, so the, um, yeah, and then I guess I should just mention that it was a single profile ratings-based conjoint design, and each participant rated three rounds. So that yielded us with about 4,275 profiles, which was uh, plenty to be powered for what we were trying to test. For sure. So tell us about the major findings then. Okay, so um, uh, the two uh, most frequently cited selected options for punishment uh, sort of like demonstrate just how divided the population was on this uh, was no punishment, so amnesty, which was almost 30% of the population or the sample, and then also about a third of the sample chose capital punishment. So there's considerable variation among most Lowry's. Yeah, and this is also, you know, this is a group, the Sunni, uh, Sunni Arab group that would be uh, the most likely we would expect to accept their, you know, accept these types of people back uh, into their community. And then we also ask, like I said, about forgiveness. Um, and uh, we actually only ask this about people who did not choose the death penalty, as we just, you know, we thought if you chose the death penalty, you're not forgiving. And about 59% uh, um, of those who didn't choose the, the death penalty were willing to forgive. And so I, the main findings then that are like the strongest predictor of um, punishment and also willingness to forgive was the type of collaboration that an actor engaged with and specifically sort of this intimacy with violence. Um, so we also find that while exposure to violence is associated with a greater desire for revenge, this perceived volition behind an act, which we found to be relatively un, uh, unstudied in, in um, 
in scholarly works on uh, enemy collaboration, it's, um, it's, it's actually a very important factor and it's more important than um, exposure to violence, at least among our sample. Um, so, so Mara, you know, could you tell us a little bit about you? So as Kristen said, you came into this uh, from the qualitative fieldwork side, and then you've added the survey experiment. You know, what do you take away from this in terms of how we should understand these kinds of uh, restorative justice type of, uh, of situations? So um, I think this work has a number of implications for um, both on, on the formal transitional justice side, so court decisions and sentencing, um, but also and perhaps more importantly on the, the social um, cohesion aspects of reintegration, uh, reconciliation, and peace building. And Chris and I actually did a, did a second survey experiment that's uh, the subject of, of another um, a forthcoming article at the American Journal of Comparative Law that looks at the reintegration side of this problem with some, some um, similar findings. Um, but, um, but so first, you know, and I, I think um, I'll, I'll say a little bit about sort of the uh, scope conditions and limited kind of limits on generalizability, but I do think the paper um, suggests some some broader um, has, has some broader implications um, and, and certainly suggests directions for research in other contexts. So first, um, you know, on the implications for just transitional justice and sentencing. So what um, uh, sentences um, do um, perpetrators deserve after after um, uh, for complicity in, in an insurgency like this? Um, I oh, Kristen already mentioned that the sample. Um, it was limited to Sunni Arabs. And so these findings, although we do find more leniency actually and willingness to forgive um, than what we had initially expected, given the seriousness of the crimes that you know, ISIL committed against its own group of Sunni uh, Arabs in, in Mosul. So this included using them as human shields in the final battle and mass executing hundreds of them as they were trying to flee from the city. So I think you know, part of the unfairness and injustice of the situation is that residents of Mosul are, are often are, have been unfairly stigmatized and seem to have been um, perpetrators here when in fact many of them were severely victim, victimized. Um, so, so I do think it's important to try to replicate um, uh, and, and, and uh, this study um, and ask similar questions with other populations in Iraq um, that had different experiences with ISIL. So Kristen is doing some of this work. Um, Mercy Corps just did a study that um, uh, built on, uh, sort of adapted our survey experiment um, uh, to run the similar study in a, in a very different context of um, Sinjar um, uh, with the Yazidi pop population there who um, experienced genocide and have um, you know, uh, much less willingness to forgive and, and more retributive punishments. And so it is important, we, we, we need to be careful that sort of the findings to, to, to clarify that the findings are mostly, you know, Iraq is an incredibly diverse um, country um, and, and uh, different, different ethnic and, and religious groups may, you know, are likely to have different, different preferences for justice. There that uh, actually Kristen Fabe and uh, Michael Bong Peterson and I actually have funding right now uh, to run three surveys in Iraq uh, later this month. So we will be looking at um, different groups like uh, Shia attitudes and uh, other groups like Yazidis uh, in that work and expanding upon the model that uh, Mar and I built here. So um, fantastic! Can't wait to see that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I was so a bit more on sort of the implications for law and policy on formal transitional justice. So we know that in Iraq, I and mean, the anti-terrorism law has enabled this one punishment fits all um, sentencing where, you know, people who were only in civilian roles as cooks or cleaners for the Islamic State are being, you know, sentenced to um, life in prison or um, even death in some cases. Uh, life in prison is the minimum punishment allowed by the law. And so from just a rule of law standpoint and a human rights standpoint, punishing people for crime 
crimes they did not commit. Um, in many cases, also convictions are based on testimony from um, uh, anonymous um, informants. Um, uh, you know, uh, the literature on civil wars is full of um, observations of people um, using uh, civil wars to basically settle old scores against personal enemies. And so a lot of the people who are ending up in these terrorism tri trials are falsely accused by uh, by neighbors, you know, over unrelated issues. Um, and you know, sentencing and also um, punishments that are disproportionately harsh um, for the offense committed um, are also um, you know undermine rule of law and are not consistent with human rights. Um, and even if you know you don't sort of buy the human rights argument that people should be uh, you know sentences should be proportional um, to the offense committed, but there's a strong national security argument here for why um, collective punishment um, and specifically mass incarceration of these collaborators is a terrible idea um, and repeats the same mistakes that Iraq and the United States made in the early 2000s um, in the counterinsurgency against Al Qaeda um, when uh, you know uh, thousands of um, of individuals, largely on the basis of sectarian profiling, were detained in U.S. administered prisons, including Camp Bucca, where um, you know at least 12 leaders of these uh, Islamic states spent time, and and that experience of incarceration and likely unjust incarceration um, with uh, uh, with torture and other human rights violations. Um, uh, those grievances um, probably contributed to to their you know what, what what others call radicalization. I don't like to use that term, but there's a very very clear and, and robust link, or at least correlation, between between experiences with state perpetrated injustice and support for violence. Um, so I think I think there's a real risk that um, uh, that you know uh, the Iraqi government's current approach to this population um, it could could generate those same kinds of grievances that then increase the the, li the likelihood of ISIL's eventual um, resurgence because as person I note in the other paper on reintegration, um, most of these people are in, uh, sentenced to life, but in practice, judges interpret that as 15 to 20 years or even less on good behavior. So most of, uh, although horrific numbers, hundreds every year are being sentenced to death, um, most of these people will eventually be released. Um, and that's the subject of our other paper. Um, but um, they, uh, the, the, you know, having been wrongfully imprisoned or um, receiving a disproportionately harsh sentence um, it makes it very, it makes it very difficult for people to reintegrate into society and creates grievances that, um, you know, in increase their their um, their possible, um, you know, sympathy for groups like ISIL in the future. On just then the implications for sort of um, informal sort of reconciliation and peace building outside of the formal justice system, um, which is a big part of the post-conflict peace building challenge um, that Iraq is facing right now and also the UN. So, so most of, um, there, there were um, at one point more than um, you know, 2 million Iraqis um, displaced in IDP camps, many of them who were perceived as having family or other kind of ties to the Islamic State that weren't criminal, weren't, uh, you know, there, there was not sufficient evidence they committed a crime for them to be prosecuted, but nonetheless, they're incredibly feared and stigmatized by their communities and their areas of origin. So I've interviewed women in IDP camps um, in 2018 who said that they were hoping they could stay in those camps forever because they were sure that if they returned to their um, to their areas of origin, they, they would be um, subject to honor killings um, and you know other forms of revenge. Um, and I think actually Kristen, Kristen uh, we want to let Kristen get in here too. Uh, I just wanted to make one last comment about actually expanding the importance of these findings uh, beyond Iraq, and mm -hmm. I think that you know the need to incorporate former enemy collaborators isn't going away. We have ISIS in other areas of the world. We have Boko Haram. We have what's going on in Afghanistan, and even for the West, the West sent uh, foreign fighters, and now many of the you know the countries in Europe, for example, are refusing to accept 
those uh, citizens back and they're stripping, stripping them of citizenship, which is a violation of international human rights law. And it's also dumping the responsibility then uh, for these people on countries like Iraq and Syria, which are already dealing with this massive tragedy and, and uh, you know, need for reconciliation with their own citizens. So it's just, it's, it's so unjust and irresponsible and unfair. So there are these like broader implications that even affect us sitting in the West. And I, I actually have another project here in Sweden trying to understand how do Swedes feel about this and, and uh, how do Europeans um, mm -hmm. think about this and are there ways at least to get some of these people to be brought back because again it's not it's um, it, I mean they also face human rights violations uh, when we leave them there uh, abroad so this is really fascinating and important research not just this article but the entire project uh, thank you so much for talking about it with us uh, Kristen and Mara and good luck with the ongoing research <laughs> This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Jonathan Fulton of Zayed University and, and someone who's written extensively about China's role in the Middle East uh, and especially in the Gulf. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Mark. Pleasure. So, so why don't we just start by just getting a big picture here. Uh, how is China thinking about the Middle East right now, and how does it view its, its evolving interests in the region? Okay, that's great. I mean, right now, I think is interesting because it's become a really hot topic, you know, especially over the past two or three years. But I think if you look at it over the long arc, it's been pretty consistent. So China's interests in the region, um, you know, ha haven't changed a whole lot in recent years. You know, it gets a lot of energy from the region. Of course, that drives a lot of it. It gets anywhere between 40 and 50% of its crude imports from the Gulf. So that makes it a very important uh, part of its energy security. And of course, it's domestic political economy. Um, it's a really important uh, market for its SOEs. They do a lot of contracting work. You know, you see all of these Middle Eastern countries that are doing a lot of these visions and development projects. China makes a lot of money from that. And I think the bigger one would be the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, this, this grand strategy. Well, I, I think they wouldn't like it to be called a grand strategy. But, you know, what China is doing is, is creating these markets and, and uh, supply chains across Eurasia and the Indian Ocean region. And, you know, I think the, the EU is a very important endpoint, but you don't get there without passing through, you know, the Arabian Peninsula, the Red Sea. So the Middle East is, is taking on a bigger strategic importance for it. So those, that's what's been driving it, you know, for, for quite a while now. Um, but I think what you've seen in just recent years is just that uh, the U.S. has maybe taken notice to a greater degree. And this is changing, not China's thinking about the Middle East in general, but just how America's approach or America's preponderance in the region could, could curtail a lot of what China's trying to do here. So here in Washington, uh, there's just a ton of talk about strategic competition with China and new Cold War and all of that. And does China see it that way in the Middle East? Does it see it as a zone of competition or does it see it as an area with some joint interests? Well, I think that's a really great question because I, I you know, when you look at America's interests in the region and China's interests in the region, they, they line up pretty neatly. Um, you know, um, maintaining uh, energy security, global markets, and, and regional stability, um, you know, uh, shipping lanes, you know, this is stuff that both countries are really concerned about. Uh, the approaches, of course, are, are wildly different. But in terms of how they, they look at the Middle East, I don't think there's a huge difference. Um, but I think for, for leaders in Beijing, what they've come to see in recent years, you know, as the pivot uh, to Asia has, has informed, you know, this shift from counterterrorism to 
the Indo-Pacific as this priority theater. And the way that America's talked about the Indo-Pacific has changed over, over the years. You know, during the Obama administration, it was really kind of a socializing mechanism, how to promote these liberal norms of, of trade and, and, and other types of activity across the Indian Ocean region. Um, under the Trump administration, it, it took on a much greater militarized approach, you know, with the Quad and, and, and these joint exercises with Australia and India and, and uh, um, Japan. And for China, they saw this as a containment strategy. And I know a lot of folks in Washington will bristle at that and say, we're not trying to contain China's rise, it's impossible, but that's how China, Beijing sees it. So with the Middle East, uh, I think what they see is not a region where they necessarily feel they can compete with US power, um, it's just impossible. U.S. preponderance here remains, um, you know, beyond the scope of anything China can do. Their, their Navy doesn't project power into the region. They've got this little um, supply base in Djibouti. Otherwise, they don't really have, they don't have any proper bases anywhere else. So it's not that they could really challenge America's uh, leadership here. I think they're pretty satisfied with a lot of what they get from America's uh, security commitments to the region. But I do think they see it as a place where America has uh, uh, far too much power over their interests, and maybe they're starting to re re rethink how they want to approach this. With all of the, the thinking in the Gulf, among the Gulf leadership about the U.S. retrenchment and their doubting of U.S. security guarantees and the like, does that affect China's thinking at all? I mean, if they've been able to free ride on U.S. provision of security in the Gulf for all these years, are they starting to question that? Well, yeah. So I think um, everybody saw there was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal about uh, this very controversial uh, Chinese base here in Abu Dhabi. Um, I don't know the nature of what this was. I mean, that article, as interesting as it was, left a lot of things unanswered. You know, is this an intelligence post? Is this, uh, you know, information gathering? Is this a proper, like, whatever it was, we don't know. Um, it's interesting to me just because it implies that, that Beijing felt that maybe there was a space where they could take on a bigger role. They've always said, every top leader has said that they intend to play a larger role in, in Middle East security issues. But the way they talk about security is always from a developmental perspective. You know, they, they use this as a way to say, look, in, in a lot of Western countries, when they talk about security, they talk about military approaches. We talk about removing the need for the military by, by addressing development needs, which is consistent with how China's kind of developed its own uh, domestic affairs. Um, so that's always been the way they talked about it. And then to think that they might try to put some kind of military installation right in the heart of Pax Americana, you know, was, was kind of eye-opening for a lot of us. Um, I'm of the opinion that it was mostly done uh, for, for domestic audience. You know, China's got something like uh, between two and 300,000 citizens living in the UAE. Um, they had to uh, evacuate a lot of people out of Libya. They had to evacuate, evacuate a lot of people out of Yemen. And every time this happens, or every time a Chinese citizen's heard overseas, uh, there's a tremendous backlash. And I think that's something folks should be more aware of, is the fact that the CCP faces a lot of domestic political pressure. So they don't want to, to be in this position where they could say, look, America's started another round of a trade war with us. We don't have access to, to get our people out of there if things get hot. So maybe this is just a way for them to say, look, this is for us to, to tell our local um, population based in the Gulf that we can, we've got their backs. Because mm -hmm. um, otherwise it doesn't make sense to me at all. I mean, it would be very isolated and very vulnerable. Well, so one of the things where there's uh, a potential clash of interest is with the JCPOA talks uh, seemingly going nowhere 
and renewed talks of Israeli military action uh, against Iran, it would seem like that would be something that could potentially harm Chinese interests significantly if there were a war that ended up uh, shutting down shipping lanes, uh, uh, disrupting oil flows and the like. Um, do, do you see anything um, in terms of their thinking about how they might be trying to prevent that from happening? Or like, what is their view of Iran right now? Yeah, well, I think that would be a problem, not just for China, but for everybody, right? It's kind of the nightmare scenario for, for everyone. Um, I think China, when, when China looks at Iran, I think they see, um, so they've, they've, they've elevated to this comprehensive strategic partner status, which is a big deal in China. It's their highest level of diplomatic relations. They don't do alliances. Um, they don't have any kind of military commitment to Iran. Uh, it's, it's basically at the same level as the UAE and Saudi Arabia here in the Gulf. Um, that said, I think they see Iran as very troublesome. You know, um, working with Saudi or working with the UAE links markets, links, um, you know, uh, shipping, it links logistics. Um, and as I said, they've got big um, expat populations working here. Iran is different, right? Iran is, is it causes problems politically, economically, um, I think what China sees in Iran is obviously a, a geopolitically very important country, um, but working closely with it, you know, they, they, they've, it's always been more hype than anything. I think what they'd like to see is that, uh, that they're seen as an important actor that can bring Iran to the table. They've got a lot of leverage. They, they've been Iran's biggest economic partner for, for well over a decade now. Um, that, gives them, that gives them influence. Um, but at the same time, they, they consistently say when they talk about Iran uh, that they share concerns about hegemony in the region, that, that uh, Iran and Russia and China all talk about either a polycentric world order or a democratic world order, depending on which capital city you're in. Um, so but by China giving just this marginal uh, support to Iran, it's enough to keep it um, kind of an active player in the region. And I think it's also maybe on a, on a more strategic perspective, the threat of Iran um, having any kind of influ influence or power is going to be enough to keep the fifth fleet based here in the Gulf and rather than repositioning it to say uh, Japan or the South China Sea or wherever. So it, it also seems to be kind of a strategic play to say, look, we're going to make it look like we're in cahoots with Iran. Um, this is going to freak out a lot of people. But when you look at what they're actually doing, it's, it's, it's pretty low level stuff. I think they're very concerned about proliferation. They're worried about Iran um, destabilizing a region that's important for them. So I think probably behind the scenes, they'll, they'll try to exert some kind of influence. No, that's really interesting. So then, so you mentioned uh, the the or not alliance, but the the status that the UAE and Saudi Arabia share uh, with Iran. More broadly, it seems like almost every country in the Gulf now has uh, has recently signed or had moved towards these, you know, much you know much bigger types of agreements and strategic agreements with China. Um, and how how do we interpret that? What is, is it just about money, or is it uh, something more? Um, so every country in the Gulf except Bahrain has one, interestingly. I'm not sure why Bahrain hasn't, um, but when you look at, it could be money because they don't do much trade with Bahrain. It's, it's typically around a billion dollars a year, whereas the others are tens of billions a year. Um, no, I think it's, it's, I think it's more than that. I mean, from the Gulf side, obviously what they've been doing is trying to diversify their great power partnerships as much as possible. Everybody, 
um, is watching Washington constantly and trying to read the tea leaves um, or the coffee grounds or whatever, it seems pretty clear that every Republican and Democrat says the same thing. Indo-Pacific is a priority theater. Let's move resources away from the Middle East. Um, that makes leaders in the Gulf say, well, look, we need to rely on a bunch of different actors. And you can see the way it's talked about is always China, US, but the UK is playing a bigger role, the EU is playing an independent and larger role, India, Japan, Korea, Russia, any number of great powers um, or, or second tier powers are, are, are playing a much more active role here as well. Um, so I don't think from this side, it's just about money. Um, from China's side, I think it's, it's about influence. It's about incorporating a bunch of countries into a, a, a similar way of looking at international politics. Um, China loves to use these um, large blocks. They have this thing called the China Arab States Cooperation Forum and the, the African one, FOCAC, which just met. Um, these organizations uh, bring a lot of countries together with China and they're able to use this to get you know, a block of countries that are gonna vote with it on, on different issues in these international organizations. So it's a pretty useful thing to have greater influence in these countries in the Gulf. Um, you know, it serves political interests as well. So there's one last question then is about uh, the climate issues and uh, the, these moves towards diversifying away from energy and the like. Um, what, how does that, how does China fit into that with its heavy energy dependence in the Gulf uh, or from the Gulf? Um, you know, what, how do they view uh, these talk, you know, the UAE or Saudi Arabia talking about their climate visions and their net zero visions and the like? Uh, do they see that as a positive or a negative thing? Oh, they see it as positive, I'd say, because, you know, in 2014, they rolled out this, um, China likes to list things with numbers, and it's called the one plus two plus three cooperation framework. And it's how they want to cooperate with Arab countries. And in each number, it's a group of different things. So one is traditional hydrocarbons, two is trade and investment, infrastructure construction, and three is where it gets interesting. It's nuclear, renewables, and digital. And this is where you see the biggest momentum, I think, in, in the greatest potential for, for um, greater long-term sustainable relations. So China's been working with different countries in the Gulf on things like sol solar panels and, and uh, you know, wind farms and developing all this stuff. So I think, um, you know, when you hear Gulf countries talk about moving towards a, a more sustainable energy consumption, you know, China's probably looking at it as a great opportunity to expand its, its uh, influence in the region. Um, I know, obviously, China, with all of its coal and its, its terrible, you know, pollution problems, uh, we, we all look at and think, how can they keep doing this indefinitely? Um, you know, they're trying, right? They're, they're putting a lot of batteries, uh, you know, in, in, in different electric cars and electric bikes and scooters and all this stuff. Uh, so long term, I think that's, that's definitely their goal. Why spend so much money? Why take so much of your wealth and send it to the Gulf if you don't have to, right? So I think long-term, they probably look at it as, hey, maybe we can be exporting energy to the Middle East instead of the other way around. Well, great. Thanks, Jonathan, for joining us. It's really interesting and a lot of important trends to watch here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me.